You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Stan Robinson is the author of novels that include the Three Californias trilogy, The Wild Shore, The Gold Coast, and Pacific Edge, The Mars trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. He is also the author of Science in the Capital trilogy, 40 Signs of Rain, 50 Degrees Below, 60 Days and Counting. His new novel is The Ministry for the Future. Thank you for joining me, Stan. Well, it's good to be back with you, Rick. It's been um, a while, but we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. You know, as I read this novel, I was just so thrilled to find myself immersed in a novel where one of the things it's about is the power and import of reading as an activity, because reading is a way in which we reprogram our minds, in a sense. We put ourselves literally in another person's perception, and if you read the book and if it's as immersive and wonderful as this one, you throw yourself right in there. So I'd like you to talk about writing a novel where it, <clears throat> the act of reading is really important. Because this, sure. this novel, the things you say and the way you say the things you say them in this novel could not be duplicated in any other form. Well, thanks for that. And yes, um I'm totally on board with what you're saying there. Reading was, for me, a mind-boggling, life-changing transformation. And I can remember, um, and I'm lucky in this, the first book that struck me, I was about seven years old, was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And I still have that copy of that of that no- great novel. And I would I put it into science fictional terms that um, if you read fiction, you are given the privilege of time travel because you go to other times and other places and uh, telepathy because you're inside other people's minds, which is usually um, not possible. But by reading you, it's an imaginative and fictional time travel and telepathy, but um, these are still powerful experiences. And as you say, they kind of reprogram the brain. for this book, the Ministry for the Future, um, it's longer. I was wondering, did this take you? Have this been written over like a number of years? No, it was 2019. Wow. Um, I've been uh, um, really uh, productive these last uh, this last decade, mainly because of my <clears throat> wonderful editor Tim Holman at Orbit Books. I had two, three book contracts with him. He put me on a tight schedule and and platformed me and uh, gave me a feeling of uh, encouragement and confidence and uh, and speed and urgency to get these books out there. And I think of those six books, the Orbit Six, as a kind of a set, with the Ministry for the Future being the the last in the set and a kind of culmination of a line of thought. So. Um, it, although I I wrote it in 2019, the prep for it goes back back to the Mars trilogy um, in terms of the reading and research and thinking about how to do it, and back to reading and how to do it. Um, so 30 covering 30 years and doing global history starting from about now, a weird assignment, but no weirder than the Mars trilogy doing 200 years of the first 200 years of humans on Mars or years of rice and salt doing 700 years of world history. I have taken on strange assignments before, and I have a huge confidence in the novel as a form. But what the thing about this one was, it was going to there was going to be a grimness. It was going to be dealing with climate change, um, a serious topic. And the novel, I mean, when you think about it, I'm going to tell you a story about how humanity deals with climate change. Well, it's it's kind of a take your medicine situation. Like, oh, wow, well, I'd rather drink castor oil than read about that. So. Um, <laughs> I wanted to make it uh, have still the pleasures of the novel. And that's where all the different forms and styles and modes that I threw into Ministry for the Future were specifically included to uh, give some of the regular pleasures of novel reading that you get when you're um, 
reading any novel is that there's a game going on there between the writer and the reader and between them they're co-creating something the, the reader has to bring an enormous amount to it to imagine and then in ministry one of the games is there's 106 chapters they're mostly quite short and in those uh, when you start a new one there's no table of contents you have no idea what kind of thing you're going to be reading it could be memos from a meeting or, or meeting notes. It could be a riddle. It could be a conversation between a radio host and a grumpy guest. Um, it could be a dramatized scene like in an ordinary novel um, and so on and so forth. There was any number of uh, forms. And in particularly what I, the main one I forgot, the eyewitness account. Somebody somewhere unnamed telling you their story. They saw something important or interesting or uh, a kind of, uh, a moment where the slow violence of our society turns into fast violence for somebody. That was how it got described to me, and I never thought of it that way before, but that is indeed the, what eyewitness, eyewitness accounts are, are kind of a genre of their own, mm -hmm. and it's not named as such. <clears throat> People don't specialize in it, but you see books all over like that are collections of accounts of people who saw something or lived something important. So um, spring of 1945 in Germany or um, uh, it, uh, uh, on the Crusades, um, uh, witness to the French Revolution. Usually they are moments of crisis and, and a dramatic incident, sometimes violent, sometimes just dramatic. So I began to read collections of eyewitness accounts, and then I began to write them fictionally to help bulk my history and give it a sense of, of variety, along with all the other forms. But the, I would say the crux for the ministry was the eyewitness account. So this was indeed, you know, the reading game that I was playing in this book. You know, also, too, I think you do something really important, which is <clears throat> to help rescue the science fiction genre from what there's a our society and our culture now is just inundated with things that call themselves science fiction but tend to be more what i would call techno fantasies in other words that there's no real thought about what goes into the technology it's just a given and you set it up and what unfolds is essentially an adventure story a revenge story or any number of stories but they're not about the crux of the thing of science fiction, which is about science. And this book is really about science, and you do something that's so wonderful. Thank you. You have elevated the presentation of realistic, actual, real science in a novel. I mean, this is a science fiction novel, I think, mostly because, not because it's about the future, it has great, fantastic technology, which it does, but because in a fictional story about human characters we care about, and in this mosaic kind of uh, style, you actually incorporate what happens in science, what is science, actual scientific facts and thoughts and processes in the course of the novel. And that is really the, it's the tightest integration of science into fiction I think almost I've ever read. It comes, it's right up there, you know, with, Clark, Arthur C. Clarke's kind of earlier works are like kind of hint at this. They're the primordial version of this. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, <clears throat> it's been my, it's been my thing in science fiction. It's been my mode. Now I want to say that I'm very ecumenical about what kinds of science fiction are uh, worth doing. I like them all. It uh, doesn't mean that I do them all, but I like them all as a reader and I wouldn't want to, <clears throat> um, make distinctions that are uh, gradients of value. They're all good. They're different. They're all still science fiction because the name is a little deceptive. Really, science fiction just means this story is set in the future and it's connected to our now by a history that gets us to that future. That's my definition of science fiction. So in other words, if a, <clears throat> if a religious cult were to take over the world and everybody began to live as if they're monks in the 14th century, that's still a science fiction novel, even though science has obviously not been foregrounded or been denied. So, um, yeah, I, I've had my angle because I'm married to a scientist, because I'm interested, because I did some work with the NSF when I went to Antarctica and got interested in NSF. And, um, and it seems to be the way my imagination moves, is, which is, I, I would say, relatively incrementally. I don't have a wild imagination like some of my colleagues in the field. And I'm 
I'm quite fond of their work in a, uh, because it's just not my kind of science fiction. And, and typically, I have to say, I read away from things, and I don't even read that much science fiction in general, so that I don't um, find out how weird I am. <laughs> that makes sense yeah yeah you. I don't want to scare myself and I also don't want to accidentally run across something that I want to do so that I'll afterwards I feel like I'm stealing the idea so the more ignorant I am the more I can just range around and and, and kind of clumsily crash around the world of science fiction and do what I want um, I know I've got great colleagues out there and I do read my friends and um, I have quite a few friends in the field so I stay connected but not uh, I'm not a student of science fiction like I was when, say, I was in my 20s, when I would say I knew the field of my contemporaries really, really well. And also my forebears in the field, the kind of mini generation that comes up every 10 years or so. You have a whole different vibe, set of editors, set of writers who are hot. And I, I'm pretty aware of the history of the science fiction, although no great fan of the golden age. For me, the science fiction that I love kind of begins in the 1950s. So there, the whole game is things are happening now in society. What if this goes on? I mean, that's a famous Heinlein story, I think. What um, if this goes on? It's the major modality of science fiction. If this goes on, we'll get to X. So, well, that's very powerful. That's that's I think what gives science fiction its power in our culture. This kind of prophecy. If this goes on, you know, it's like Jeremiah. We're we're screwed. Or if this goes on, we could get to a good place. Uh, a rarer thing that I myself do quite often, uh, the utopian um, urge. So you uh, combine both in this book. I do. Well, <laughs> in fact, I just read a review of it. I think it was by Bill McKibben, the great founder of 350.org. And he wrote a wonderful review of ministry where he said it's an anti-dystopian novel. And so it's not a utopian novel. It's anti-dystopian. Well, I love that. That is a very uh, good way to put it. Because at the end of ministry, I mean, we have dodged a mass extinction event. So that's a very low bar for, <laughs> for, utopia, for definitions of utopia. What's a utopia? Well, we dodge a mass extinction event. That would be pretty damn good, given where we are now. And it will take science. And I am interested in the set of nested institutions. Like uh, my wife belongs to CTEX, Society for environmental toxicologists and chemists, SeaTac, like the airport up in uh, Seattle. Um, and she belongs to the American Chemical Society. And believe me, there are scores of these little scientific societies where the scientists that work in that field get together. SeaTac's very proud of itself because it draws people from academia, from government, and from business. And they get together and they talk about what should environmental toxicology, you know, which is insecticides and pesticides, et cetera, and, and chemistry. What should we be doing to make a, a healthier world, which includes not poisoning ourselves? And the people in business in that, in that group will be saying, well, look, we got to make money. We need food. Let's poison the shit out of things and it'll all be OK later. And the government people who are studying the soil, this would be my wife's line, they're going, well, but you're drinking poisoned water. Um, notice that your endocrine system is completely disrupted and you men, your sperm count is like one third of what, it, you know, what your grandfather's sperm count was. And this is real. And this is coming from these wonderful um, pesticides that we're applying to make more food for ourselves. We can't do that. And the academics are providing all kinds of new uh, ways of looking at things and new interpretations. And the three groups getting together, they're not fighting, but they are entangled and debating and arguing, how do we provide food without actually, you know, um, uh, poisoning ourselves to death? So that's just CTEC. And there are hundreds of these organizations, literally hundreds. And they sometimes gather at the top into larger things, like the... Um, the UN uh, Climate Change Organization, uh, IPCC, uh, if that's what it, IPPC, uh, you know what I mean. This is one of the problems mm -hmm. with these acronyms, is that I can't keep them straight and nobody can. Uh, and they don't, it doesn't really matter, but there are, um, there's a worldwide network of scientific organizations that uh, rally and organize the thinking of individual scientists doing their individual research. And the 
institutions get left out of people's thinking. Of course, you have Stephen Hawking. It's not like you have the uh, American Geophysical Union. You have Stephen Hawking. People tend to personalize it. And novels tend to personalize things. you got to have characters. So um, I've been interested to see if you can te- uh, write novels where the institutions get uh, somehow made into the protagonist and, and still hold on to characters that you care about because I'm I'm just like any other novel reader. I want my characters. Well, this is a bundle of weird uh, uh, challenges to to give myself for for novels, but it's you know it's it's really interesting. I I know my novels end up looking strange. I can tell that from the feedback I get um, without really knowing what other novels are like. I know that mine are regarded as strange, which is fine because. There's a lot of books out there, and uh, why why do you choose to read one uh, rather than another? Well, it has to do with pleasure, but pleasure also has to do with newness and weirdness. Mm. So I've I've gotten bolder. I would say, and for first of all, it's been a long career, but secondly, I've gotten bolder as I've tried a lot of strange things, and they have gotten me a following. Essentially, the Mars books. Um, sort of changed the arc of my career. And after that, I felt bold enough to try anything that occurred to me. And so ministry is kind of the end of a long process of experimentation. You know, the beginning of this book is among the most striking (laughs) passages I've ever immersed myself in. It's just really terrifying. And so talk about... uh, Mm-hmm. creating a book that has a, a an upward swing starting out literally in what many would regard as you know the the pits of hell yeah well that was tough um and i have to say i i i wrote this book and that scene because i'm quite scared that it could happen and i'm mm-hmm. talking about a heat wave that if if we if climate change, which is really global warming, if we continue to pump carbon into the atmosphere as a waste product and not deal with it, and global average temperatures rise by even one more degree, well, I want to say as an aside that there's part of the intellectual community that has been saying for some years now um, that's going to happen. We can't stop it. We're we're just going to adapt to it. Quit whining. Uh, humans are adaptable, and we can adapt to anything, and we'll spend the money, or we'll cope, and it's just a matter of adaptation. And this is sort of the vibe of adaptation um, uh, uh, advocates. And what I was learning from the scientific research is that that is a false assessment of the danger, because if you get to a combination of heat and humidity, that is, um, they call it a wet bulb 35. What it, that would be the equivalent of, say, 95 degrees Fahrenheit with 100% humidity. The humans die in that. Uh, sweat, sweating doesn't work, and therefore you begin to parboil. Um, you're getting poached. And hyperthermia is just as dangerous for the human organism, and probably more so than hypothermia. We, we exist in a very narrow range of possible body temperatures. And if you can't cool yourself off, you die and, and within hours. And so um, this situation, this wet bulb 35 temperature, we're hitting it around the world in the tropics and one time very near Chicago, Illinois, the temperature registers so that if you get a humidity of, say, uh, 70%, well, then you need it to be like 105 degrees to get to that that index of the wet bulb 35 combo. And I think weather channels have a heat index where they combine heat and humidity to tell you how it feels. And of course, everybody knows it feels more uncomfortable the more humid it is with heat. Since we're headed towards that, you would have to, and I wanna emphasize that you could be naked indoors with a fan on you and still die because sweating wouldn't work at these temperatures. and. Um, so you'd have to be in air conditioning, but air conditioning relies on electricity and electricity uh, systems, power grids break down when they're over uh, pressured. In fact, this week, PG&E is going to kill the electricity to our area of Northern California. If these winds um, get up to 40 miles an hour, then they don't want fires. And even though it's raining, we may have our electricity cut, but also systems break down. And especially in countries that don't have 
really robust uh, power grids. It all combines to a, a disaster coming down on us. So I said, all right, I got to write that. Um, and it was really one of the more painful, maybe the most painful writing experience of my life. But I just sat there. I, I had to make it an American so that I could get inside this character and not try to pretend I was an Indian. Um, I'm, I'm willing to pretend anything. But for this particular scene, I wanted to have a young, naive American aid worker as my character. And I also thought that his differences, his his diet, his athletic career, his body shape, he, he ends up being the sole survivor of a heat wave in the village that he's in, the sole survivor. And then after that, you got post-traumatic stress disorder, which is, I think, one of the affects of our time. It's going to be a kind of a social disease as well as an individual disease as we get into traumas this huge that come from our own actions. There's nobody to blame. It's not really a war. It's us and our our inability to deal with our own wastes as a civilization. So that's why I had to write that opening scene. And then my, my test for myself was, what's the best case scenario? Could that could something like that happening um, scare the world into doing the right things and what would that mean? And of course, some people would not be convinced to do the right things because we're not that coherent. Um, and, and so what would the history, could I make a best case scenario even starting with that disastrous beginning? So that was how ministry got formulated in my head. You know, one of the things I really lo <clears throat> love about this book is the way you treat economics as a, as a science and and really play it out play out all the scenarios and, ex, and explain what we know now about you know capital the capitalism economy and, and the various ways that you can move that to something else and, and it struck me that this is the, like the first time that economics has really been treated seriously in many ways as a science so it's subject to this kind of like science fiction speculations. Well, it doesn't involve, you know, the, the what's interesting is the technology of, of economics doesn't play out on transistors or in engines or in any kind of technology that it, it's, uh, it plays out in laws and in agreements and in trees. So I think that's a really um, interesting way what you uh, the spins you apply to this are are really fascinating. Talk about just like and learning about economics and treating it as an, a science which you can science fictionalize with. Yeah, well, um, thanks for that question because that has been a mighty undertaking for me. Um, it began back when I was reading reviews of the, maybe Red Mars itself. Robinson has some economic speculations in this book about how things might evolve on Mars. It's too bad he doesn't know anything about economics, you can tell. And I was, you know, irritated at that. But I had to admit, uh, as I began to ponder it, that basically this critic was right in that I didn't know very much and I was just going off of a few things that I had read elsewhere and coming at it as an English major and as a, um, uh, in political terms, as a kind of a 1970s hippie leftist, California Buddhist, um, um, uh, American left winger. UC but, Irvine graduate. <laughs> Uh, no, UC San Diego. So, oh, San, San Diego, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. UCSD is my school. And then I taught at UC Davis when ran into Gary Snyder up at Davis as well. I had a wonderful education, but it was as an English major. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, okay, that's valid enough. Probably the books would be stronger the more I know about this subject. And I began to read about it. Quickly, I realized economics as a discipline is the quantitative analysis of capitalism itself. In other words, it's not speculative or projective. It doesn't bother to postulate entirely other kinds of economic systems and then analyze those. It simply puts its lens on the already existing sets of laws and then suggests tweaks and improvements and implications and studies of the already existing system. So all these departments of economics, all these think tanks all over the world, they simply analyze capitalism so if you if you wanted to talk about a, a different system, say a full-on state socialist system or a, a made-up system from scratch, that would be called political economy. And 
it used to exist in the 19th century political economy when it wasn't obvious that capitalism was uh, going to take over the world and look began to look permanent. Uh, when there was an opening in history where all the revolutions were happening and um, industrialization was happening really fast, uh, technological changes were happening so fast, there was imperialism, there was wild uh, actions in history to make it look like you might end up with a completely other system, in particular the big um, push uh, with uh, Marx and Leninism towards uh, state socialism systems. Well, political economy, you don't see academic apartments of political economy. Sometimes you'll see Department of Politics, like at UC Santa Cruz. They don't call it political science because they laugh at the idea that it's a science. So they want to be uh, accurate at UC Santa Cruz, and they call it their Department of Politics. A lot of academic departments call it the Department of Political Science, but they don't call it political economy. And there you see that they have delinked and uh, began already to mystify the problem. If you say it's political science, it's all about politics, and you don't include economics as being the, one of the ways that politics exerts itself on the world and on our minds and our lives, then you've already uh, thrown under the carpet the problem of the economic system, and you're back to pretending that capitalism is the only way things can work. So, in effect, there is no good, robust political economy um, discipline in our world today. But there's a need for it. And now what we're seeing, right, uh, as I read on and on, more and more economics, what political economy I could find, both historical and kind of um, almost science fictional, imaginative, utopian, alternative systems, uh, where there wasn't money or they, uh, everything was run through forms they filled out on computers, various uh, speculative systems. Um, I began to see that in our world right now, there are... Um, um, what you might call radical economists who are pushing at the edges and saying economics isn't good enough anymore because the capitalist system as such is the problem. It's, it's ruining people's lives because 90% of the world's population would, is in what people call the precariat. They feel precarious uh, financially. And only 10% of the world is confident that they're going to be okay if a health crisis or something else happens. Um, then also the biosphere. The biosphere is being poorly uh, priced or valued. Um, the, academic, the, the capitalist system uses the biosphere as if it's an exploitable uh, re resource like human labor and rips it off and doesn't replace it. And now we're at a general crash of the system. So uh, even economists are beginning to think something better ought to happen. And you see things like modern monetary theory which is mostly a return to Keynesianism, John Maynard Keynes and his, his theories that got us out of the depression and, and built the post-World War II order that business and, and government ought to be in a balance and that government makes up money so it can therefore throw money around and, and change things and can also tax people appropriately. That Keynesianism was defeated by neoliberalism in 1980 with the Reagan Thatcher counter-revolution against uh, Keynes and against uh, New Deal type thinking. And for 40 years, we've been in neoliberalism, which is one name for capitalism re, uh, redoubled to, to, to a kind of feudalism of power over people and the, the 1%, the whole thing that neoliberal capitalism is now being revealed for. So one step that that modern monetary theory is theorizing is, well, let's go back to Keynesianism as a first step, and we know how it works, and we can, if there were further steps after that, then fine, but we need to take this first step. I got really interested in that, because at, at the moment that we're in, with the IPCC saying that um, we have, you know, a decade or so before the climate situation becomes radically bad, in 10 years to invent an entire new world economy when we've got this vast structure of laws, as you put, as you rightly said, laws and practices, but mostly laws that you have to obey, to, to utterly reform that and make up an entirely new system in 10 years when there's 8 billion humans, I thought that was very implausible. And I wanted to write a novel that talked about what we could do right now with things like uh, tax laws and um, uh, quantitative easing and uh, blockchain uh, money, et cetera. The, the, the technology, which you rightly are using the word, this is a technology, it just happens to be software rather than hardware. What could we do right now that would, would take the, next, the first few steps 
what came after that might be even more utopian, but I needed to focus on the, in this novel on the next 30 years, not 200 years from now. So that's what I ended up trying for. And indeed, I do, I'm not an original thinker and especially not in economics. I'm more like a reporter, like a journalist, except mm -hmm. that I do I tell stories um, that are fictionalized. But they are indeed other people's work that I am finding in the literature out there or meeting people in person and having them talk my ear off and then writing it, writing down scenarios based on other people's ideas. And I would say that ideas about what I call post-capitalism are out there and they're growing stronger. And it's because of the, the, the crisis of climate change is forcing the action. Nobody can say anymore, even though there are people who say it, but they're fools, I think, oh, well, capitalism is fine, let's not worry, let's keep on going. And these are usually people in that top 10% who are actually defending their privileges. Um, you don't see people down at the, say, the 30% level of income saying things are fine, uh, because actually they're close to being immiserated. So even though there are still defenders of the current order, most people are beginning to realize, hey, we need big changes. We actually need to get paid for doing good things for the biosphere rather than ripping off the biosphere, which is the way it works now. And so how's that going to work? And that's what I wanted to dive into. You know, um, one of the things you do in this book that's really interesting uh, is a part of your economic um, argument involves the the what we owe the inhabitants of the future. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that one of the kind of side uh, chains of this is an inversion of the classic science fiction idea of somebody who decides to go back in time and kill Hitler and make everything better. <laughs> you, <Yeah. know? laughs> you yeah. do a great job of inverting that. And, and also that's where you uh, deal with something that it is uncomfortable to talk about, which is, uh, I'm thinking now of an old uh, song by a band called Mott the Hoople. Mm -hmm. uh, they did All the Young Dudes, written by David Bowie, but one of their other songs was called Violence. And, and the, the chorus was, violence, violence, it's the only way to teach them common sense. Mm. Well, <laughs> well, that's a bad thought. Um, it is. <laughs> uh, although uh, it, it's not unusual the, to occur to people because there is a stubbornness to, especially to people who have privileges and have power, you, if you were to get on, into a debate with them, like an, an old high school debate or college debate where you line up, you take your turns, you make your arguments, and some godlike committee or jury says you've won that debate on points for these reasons. All that rationality goes out the window when it comes down to power in the real world and the best arguments in the world will bounce off people with power who don't want to give it up because they're scared for their kids. But let's go back to what you said about what do we owe to the people of the future because that mm -hmm. word owe is a financial word. Exactly. And very, I mean, it's a moral word too, right? But it's put in terms of debt and owing and that's where I want to bring up something very interesting from economics that I had to try to understand and write about is that if you count up all the future humans that are going to come, assuming we survive as a species, you get up into stupendous numbers. Uh, estimates range, and, and of course this is a crazy thing to estimate, it's very much of a science fictional game, so I kind of love it. 800 billion <laughs> humans in, over the lifetime of the species, uh, four quadrillion humans over the lifetime of the species, um, how many people will be on Earth and how long will we go on? Well, you can just fudge those numbers, but what's clear is, if we go on as a species and don't kill ourselves off, there's going to be many more future people than there are present people. So when you try to decide what you're going to do right now, and if you take the future humans as being equally uh, deserving of the biosphere and of, and of human history's efforts, then we are outnumbered by oh, you know, let's just say a million to one. And so therefore, we ought to be doing everything that we do for the people of the future and really nothing for ourselves if it happens to get in the way of that. Well, what happens when you're doing um, cost-benefit analyses and you're trying to put these things into equations like economists do, there's a kind of a almost math or a very simple algebra. I mean, the mathematics of economics is, is, 
is simplistic and weird and um, not particularly complicated compared to real mathematics. But if you try to make an equation that weighs our interests of right now against all the future people, you run into them being a kind of an infinity. And in all mathematics, when you're trying to deal with an infinity, it blows your equations apart and you have to try to dodge infinities. This is true in physics and all over the place. The way economists do it is they put in a discount rate so that, um, and it's very similar to the way we discount money. Um, will you take 90 cents now or can I give you a dollar a year from now? Which, uh, you know, in which case it's more, but you have to wait a year. I'll take the 90 cents right now. So you're applying a 10% discount rate um, to this um, to this calculation in your mind, 10% discount rate. Now, I want to warn you that this is a notional example, and I might be getting all the figures wrong here. But you see what I mean. We discount the future at a rate that is chosen out of a hat. There's no scientific basis for the discount rate. If you value the future generations a lot, your discount rate would be low. And some economists say the discount rate should be zero. It's just a ripoff of future people to have any discount rate at all. But we always apply one anyway. Um, if the discount rate is high, then you don't value the people of the future very much. And, and you could say, look, if we do this great project, this maybe water cleaning plant, we will save $10 billion in health costs for sick people uh, 20 years from now, and then you apply a big discount, and you're going, well, but we have to spend a million dollars to save that $10 billion, which with the discount rate applied is like a, a half a million dollars. So you're spending more than you're actually gonna get out of it when you apply that fictionalized or made up arbitrarily chosen discount rate, and then the cost-benefit analysis of what to do for the future becomes all messed up. Here's There's living examples I just ran into. The Trump administration and their decisions as an administration always chose a 7% discount rate. Uh, William Nordhaus, who won the pseudo-Nobel Prize in economics, because it's not a real Nobel Prize, the economists give it to themselves, uh, he, he got the no, pseudo-Nobel for uh, postulating that we, and he's an environmentalist um, uh, economist, supposedly, a 4% discount rate. The Obama administration always applied a 3% discount rate, and the latest studies of the uh, current climate situation, and I've been seeing this in the literature now, suggests that really we ought to apply a 1% discount rate. So you see the spread. And 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 also, and um, what's interesting is that there are some people saying that, why does it have to be a steady rate linear for all future? Why can't you do like the seven generations of, of India and Native Americans and say for the seven generations before and after you, you treat just like you, after that, it could be like a bell curve, and the discount rate began to get higher so that you reduce the infinity. So this is, these are um, this is ways of talking about both economics, but also the, the uh, ways of quantifying a moral attitude towards the future generations. That is so fascinating, and it's, it's the essence of the power of science fiction, what you just said is absolutely at the core of the i think the urge to write science fiction what science fiction is that is it down to the the seed yeah how do we think of the future generations yeah it's at least part of it and it's it's certainly part of the utopian impulse in science fiction because why write a utopia it's not really going to happen in your lifetime you're thinking about the children and the descendants and could we make a better system than what we're in right now which you know given the system we're in right now it seems highly possible so and 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 really for me, what this has been is a long, really 25 year um, screwed up self-education, um, blundering about listening to experts whom I trust, who are good at teachers who clarify things for me, whom I can understand and getting better and better at thinking about, well, I'll just tell a story about that. I'll make the central banks the central the central feature of a novel. Well, this is stupid and crazy, but um, it's new. Yeah, this is the, uh, that's true. This is the first novel where the I think has ever been written where central banks are, are major <laughs> characters. Yes, that I I I I think that's probably uh, true. <laughs> now, now, one of the things I think that is is so interesting about this is the way that the you encounter it as a piece of literature, because. Um, 
it's it's a very much like a, I guess a mosaic kind of thing. You would give us all these pieces, and as readers, I think one of the the tensions are how are we going to be able to put these together? And it's really fun to read and read you know one part here, and you're going, well, this is weird. This is just like some kind of like beautiful little prose poem about something, and then as you get further down. You that becomes a link in a much bigger picture, and you go, "Oh my God! Oh, that was this person talking, and they've been doing this all along in the back." So, talk about the intricacies mm-hmm. of plotting this and putting it, you know, together. Did you write all the pieces in the order we read them? Did you put them together? Did you write out write one hundred and six chapters and, and cover your walls? No, uh, they certainly weren't written in order. That that. That I never do that, but in this case that would have been impossible. Uh, it was like a mosaic. I would write pieces like you would have a piece of tile and make that piece of tile as shiny and colorful as I could, and then put it aside. and And later on, I would assemble them into the pattern. Now, uh, in this novel, the pattern uh, it rests on the Frank and Mary story, mm-hmm. which is a conventional um, dramatized scenes like you would read in any other novel. And you could do a thought exercise and strip out anything, everything but the Frank and Mary scenes. Uh, and you would have a maybe a novella or a very short novel about this very weird dyad of Stockholm syndrome and Lima syndrome. One person post-traumatic stress disorder the other person post-traumatic but not suffering from the stress disorder which is i've understood only after writing the book that's why mary is interested in frank i mean he kidnaps her and he yells at her all night long there's no reason for her to be interested in him but she is interested in him because she's seen something that night that she's um, managed to forget her early trauma that was as shocking as Frank's in its own way. Because what I feel now is that all humans are post-traumatic, but only a smaller percentage of humans suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder where they can't get over it and it wrecks the rest of their lives. Why some people can survive horrific traumas and go on and function well and even be happy, whereas other people with quite similar traumas are wrecked for life, that's a, a unsolved problem in human psychology. But I have this couple, uh, Frank and Mary, and that's like the skeleton of the novel. Uh, But I wanted to write about the whole world getting through um, climate change successfully over a 30 year period. It couldn't just be two characters. You know, that's the the literary novel, which is a horrific phrase. The what would you call it? The MFA novel, late modernism, um, the kitchen window epiphany. Yeah, exactly. I, I, my wedding ring fell down into the uh, garbage disposal, and I had an epiphany when I saw the spring blossoms on the tree outside. In other words, the the psychology of the individual subject as being the, the proper topic for the novel, well, there are good novels written that way, no mm-hmm. doubt about it. I love them as much as anybody. And, and the novel does depend crucially on characters and plot. I, I fully uh, down with that. You can't get by without them. But you can uh, use a skeleton of the ordinary dramatized scenes and what you would call the typical novel form, and you can add to it with a huge variety of stuff. And there's many novels that have done that before. I often point back to John Dos Passos in the USA trilogy, because in science fiction, that got picked up by John Brunner in Stand on Zanzibar. Mm. So people understand what you're talking about. And I've done it myself in 2312, and um, very often I've I've weighted down my ordinary dramatized scenes part of the novel with extra stuff. Uh, and there, what I think becomes interesting is you got to think of the novel as polyvocal. You got to think of it as being a variety of forms. It's not a genre like plays or a genre. It's a big grab bag. It's a prose narrative with a problem, as somebody said. So the novel can do lots of stuff. And in sometimes I have really pressured it as a formal construct. And I realized that in this world, a whole lot of readers think that novels can only be 20 dramatized scenes in a row and have to be about individual middle-class characters thinking their domestic lives. And the moment you begin to talk about ideas or 
governmental structures or anything else or even nature you're getting away from the novel into a lot of people are very simplistic oh that's exposition oh that's an info dump oh robinson you know the king of the info dumps as if um the stuff that isn't dramatized scenes is always the same so many of these readers haven't been even able to see or understand that the eyewitness account is neither exposition nor is it the dramatized scenes that you will see normally in novels because when somebody's telling you about something that happened to them 20 years ago that blew their mind they don't tell you what they had for breakfast that morning they don't set up the scene with the setting and the sunlight and and the dialogues they don't in other words tell it like a novel would tell it they tell it but it's telling not showing if you use that um rather poor distinction. So what I'm saying is that in for ministry, I wanted more forms rather than less forms. So there's riddles, there's um, meeting notes, there's um, radio transcripts, uh, et cetera. And, and I, I even forget, although as I said, the eyewitness account was crucial. And, and yet, if you didn't have, like at one point my editor was going, God, I love this other stuff so much. Do you really need the Frank and Mary story? And that scared me. When he said that, I'm going, wait a second, that's a bridge too far. I definitely need my Frank and Mary. It's like mm -hmm. saying, does your body need a skeleton? And I'm going, well, I don't want to be a jellyfish. I want to be a mammal. Uh, so I said, no, 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 I need Frank and Mary real bad. They are the, they're the spine of this story and what people will latch onto. But I do notice there's a certain class of reader that every time I leave Frank and Mary, they're like, oh, this is this is info dump land and I can't handle it. It's extraneous to the real story as if only talking about middle-class uh, domestic lives and thoughts. That's the only real story for this class of novel reader. And now I'll say this, science fiction readers are usually more broad-minded than that, but Ministry for the Future is being read by a lot of people who haven't read much science fiction. And so for them, it's kind of blowing their mind. And I think a good way, because we talked about this at the at the top of the interview a bit, uh, but you actually have at one point um, in the novel uh, a bunch of the the world's you know the people who are both um, Doctor Evil and the the captains of industry essentially all all have a little little meeting where they go every year, and you have that meeting disrupted. And by by not really terrorists, but by people who just force these people to live differently for for a little while, and, and they're all dismissing it. They're they're seeing through these lectures and just saying, "Ha ha! All this stuff that this we're being told is is not affecting me," and they go away. But it does affect them, and I think that's exactly what happens when we read this novel. You read. All this stuff about how, you know, by equating the import of financial and economic history and theory and thoughts with our everyday lives, because they are so deeply intertwined, if you rip mm -hmm. the economy out of us, as we've seen <laughs> in the past we, year, yeah. it's like removing the circulatory system, probably not going to function well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we starve, we get bored. I mean, it, it ranges from boredom to terror um, without society. And indeed, there's a scene in the novel, I, I like that Davos scene where they take Davos hostage and try to re-educate the, um, the 1% and it doesn't and kind of bounces off them, but it doesn't. But there's another scene where a city um, runs out of its water supply because of drought. And then everybody realizes that without government shipping in truckloads of water and an orderly uh, um, dispersal of that water to the populace, everybody will die. And at that point, society, you realize that you're a bee in a beehive. So say you're a bee in a beehive and you're going to write a novel about bee, that bee's life. If you focus in on that bee's consciousness and don't pay any attention to the hive or the queen or the system of the beehive, well, you get uh, literary fiction. 
And the bee does have a, a, a vivid internal life of its own. You know, it's got mm -hmm. radar, it's got sonar, it's got, uh, it sees an ultraviolet, it's doing its dances, it's going off and it's coming back. But if, it, if the novel is only focused on that one bee's mentality, it's missing crucial aspects of that bee's existence because that bee is just one part of a hive. Well, we're the same. So when I try to pull the hive into the novel and some people squeak about it, it's partly because MFA programs and English departments and the success of the great modernist novels, which were truly great novels, has um, uh, limited what people's sense of the novel is. And so if you go back to, say, Balzac or George Eliot or Dickens, the great realists, they always include history and society and their characters are are vivid but they you don't spend your entire novel inside the mind of pip worrying about pip's fate you actually get into the larger society that he's part of and in balzac even more so zola etc so what i'm doing is kind of just expanding back out into the territory that the novel was good at and then what science fiction brings to it which i love is the planet the biosphere, the fact that we're 50% of the DNA in your body is not human DNA. Literary fiction can't deal with that. Science fiction, it's like, well, yeah, it's the alien novel. We already knew that, you know, didn't you even watch Alien, etc. And so science fiction brings you the planetary and a larger sense of what the novel itself can do. So I'm very happy to be part of the science fiction community because we had it right as to what the novel can be, a bigger vision than um, so-called literary fiction. Well, you know, I, I always think, too, uh, of Dracula, which is this... It, we, we've seen so many spins on that. It's always about the handsome guy with the, with the sharp teeth. But when you read the novel, it's all over the place. There are letters, there's... there's transcripts hmm. it, 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 it's really covers like you get a pretty good picture of much more than the guy with sharp teeth oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's lovely in fact i'm glad you said that because it reminds me uh that it goes right back to defoe mm -hmm. so at the at the origin of the english novel and the modern novel as we think of it with daniel defoe a fantastic novelist he was always intent to tell you this um, collection of materials that I got here, eyewitness accounts of what it was like during the plague. I myself was in the plague. In reality, that was historical fiction. That uh, It had all happened about 50 years before Defoe wrote it. He was like five years old in the plague, but and so he was actually there. But when he wrote Journal of the Plague Year, he imitated um, like newspaper accounts, and he wrote it up as a grab bag of things, very like Ministry for the Future. I was um, blown away by Defoe's um, super intelligent, and he was a well-educated man. It wasn't like he just stumbled into this like some a drunken journalist who invented the novel. He was brought up by dissenters and, and had the equivalent of an intense college education in rhetoric. And, and, and he knew his Latin, and he was a great writer. And so even though his novels, well, his novels, we still remember them because they are so great, and not just Robinson Crusoe, but especially Maul Flanders and Roxana. So what I'm saying is that all along the novel has done this stuff. And when you get to Dracula, you also get, what's the vampire an image for? Uh, it's not just a guy with sharp teeth in Transylvania. It's the 1%. They suck your blood. So the symbolic value that science fiction images are not just uh, dream images are brought up for fun like cartoons. They stand for something like po uh, symbols in poetry. And then you get the power of symbolism thrown in with all the rest of this stuff. So you got advantages in form and you got advantages in content that get away from the um, very attenuated and weak-kneed world of, of current literary fiction, you get into a much bigger and deeper realm. It's like going from a swimming pool into the ocean when you shift out of literary fiction into the bigger world of literature. So um, I'm, I'm happy to be part of the science fiction community. I always have been. And now what I'm seeing is that since the world itself is this big science fiction novel that we're all writing together, which I've been saying for about 20 years. You memorably told me that in one of our early interviews, Rick, we're living in a bad science fiction novel, a thought that occurs to me practically daily. 
And now everybody says that. And, and indeed, back last March when the pandemic hit, I suddenly was getting requests from all over, from places that had never been interested in me before. They were recognizing, geez, we're in a science fiction scenario. Oh, my God. As if we hadn't been for the last 50 to 80 years or forever. But in any case, they write me, please explain the situation to us. And really and truly, I had nothing. I was just like anybody else. It's like, wow, I had no idea this could happen. I don't know what to make of it. And that was my honest response. So I'm not saying that uh, science fiction is actually good at predicting the future or understanding the future, but it introduces the mysteries of the future and it gives you a certain amount of flexibility of thought when you contemplate history. Uh, and so I made my best efforts and, and, and I concentrated all my efforts, in fact, into a response from a very... Uh, smart and kind editor at the New Yorker who asked me early on to write something. And that essay was part of the change. Well, people are reading the Ministry for the Future partly because they heard of me for the first time last May uh, in the New Yorker without any knowledge of my previous novels. Wow. So it's been a weird year. You know, uh, you talked about science fiction isn't good at predicting the future, which is, uh, I think, quite true. But what the, um, Corey Doctorow once told me this, another thing that stuck in my brain, it's not about predicting the future. It's about predicting the present, which is to say, um, like horror fiction, it, it externalizes those all the things that we don't want to say, we think we can't say, we think we shouldn't say, the things we really, really want to say. But when people we do, people look at us and go, seek professional help. Uh, yeah. Well, that's right. And I want to say, Cory Doctorow is one of the science fiction writers I read, and um, for good reasons. He teaches me things um, about the world today. He orients me to the present. Cognitive mapping, it gets called. Mm -hmm. uh, what's going on today? Well, if I read Cory, I understand it better. So he's a really good science fiction writer and one of the people that I follow and learn from and like I recently read a, a novella quartet of his called Radicalized, four stories that between them, they help to, it's like North, South, East, West. They, they help to orient you to the moment that we're in. And like you say, to clarify it, like the way horror fiction would, would uh, allow the demons out and, and visualize them so you can see what you're scared of. And with science fiction, it's like Corey says, you, you, you run trajectories into the near future and then you think, oh yeah, I, that's happening now, isn't it? And it's like, yes, it's happening now. So that's what he's up to. And I would say that um, he and I share a certain zone of uh, science fiction aesthetics and do things in the near future do them from a leftist perspective, keep the technological analysis really real, and 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 do a kind of realism of our time. And I know there's more than the two of us, there's a whole crowd, but, but he's one that I actually follow and learn a lot from. You know, one of the things I think this book is so good at is uh, a, a lot of people, including myself, said, said when when at you know about a year ago said wow i just couldn't imagine that books like this make it possible for us to imagine that and that is really the first step towards being able to change the present in a way that will influence the future positively mm -hmm. that's right and i wonder if um, that in that sense, the pandemic was a kind of ringing of a bell, a kind of smack to the face. Um, everything changed because people were scared of dying. That's the plague aspect of it and um, had to cope. And it was it's a big society, complex, technological. The change involves dropping into a depression economically that we are not out of and are maybe not even fully in yet. Uh, and the signals are mixed because the stock market is still soaring, which shows that the 1% is so rich that they're detached from the fate of ordinary people in the planet. And that's probably a bubble, uh, but um, there's a lot of money in it. If there's enough money in a bubble, maybe it's not a bubble. But it is an economy that is a mess. And everybody has to attend to the pandemic. And, and no matter how rich you are, you still could get sick and die. So um, what I'm saying is that was the year 2020. Maybe the 20s, our 20s, as opposed to the famous Roaring 20s, maybe our 20s will be different than they would have been without the pandemic. And people will be more aware that big changes have to happen for civilization to survive and be willing. Like if somebody says now, 
Um, we need to invent $2 trillion from scratch and throw it out there and make sure that the first spending of it goes to good green jobs. Well, that sounds like a sentence from a mad utopian science fiction writer. If I wrote that sentence 20 years ago, people would be going, oh, Stan, you're such an optimist, blah, blah, blah. Uh, optimist <laughs> meaning you're such an idiot because optimist in our culture is the equivalent of idiot. Um, and I know that very well, being often called optimist when people, I know people mean the other thing. But um, it just happened, okay? And it's now it's happened twice. It happened in 2008, it happened in 2020. And so now when you say that, you're just talking about things that we can really do. And this is the, the main thread of the finance in my ministry for the future is a carbon coin that the central banks get together so that they can back this money so it won't be run down by speculators. And it's a real currency. It's not Bitcoin or any kind of speculative bubble, or, which is really kind of a bullshit game of people trying to make money out of nothing. It's the central bank saying, no, this is real money. We back it. And that real money gets spent for green causes, for um, essentially for people and for biosphere first. And then it enters the general economy and, and, and circulates in typical capitalist style. If you had that and a wicked progressive uh, tax structure to um, bring it all back and horizontalize the amount of wealth in this society to, to make sure that everybody gets compensated for the good work that they do. Well, these are legal means. These are financial instruments. They used to be uh, maybe utopian ideas. Now they're current realities. And so um, um, I, what I'm saying is that the shock of the pandemic and the financial response to the pandemic's depression are teaching us lessons about what we're going to have to do with climate change, too. And so it might be that uh, I'm not saying it's, it was a good thing. I'm saying that there's a silver lining to that big black cloud of 2020. The new novel by Kim Stanley Robinson is The Ministry of the Future. Thank you for joining me, Kim. Oh, Rick, always a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>